The talk you are about to hear is by Zen teacher Sensei Amala Wrightson. <clears throat> Today is the first day of our winter seven day session. Uh, it's 29th of June uh, 2019 and um, today and for the next few days we're going to look into um, a passage called Bodhidharma's Outline of Practice. Um, we've looked at it before in Sashin, um but it warrants uh, our having another look because it's very, uh, very clear uh, succinct instructions for a practice. Uh, this time we're going to look at it in conjunction with a very fine commentary by Shodo Harado Roshi which appears, appears in a book called The Path to Bodhidharma, the teachings of Shodo Harado Roshi, uh, translated by Priscilla Daichi Storant and edited by Jane Largo. <clears throat> Just a little bit about um, Harada Roshi. He's the abbot of uh, Sogenji, a, a 300 year old temple in Okayama in Japan. And he's an heir to uh, Yamada Mumon Roshi, who lived from 1900 to 1988, who was one of the great uh, Rinzai masters of the 20th century. At, at um, Harada Shodo's uh, monastery, Sogenji, uh, many, many people come to train from all over the world. Um, probably more foreigners, generally, I've heard anyway, that there are usually more for foreigners at Sogenji than there are uh, Japanese. Um, in fact, his closest disciple is um, the translator of our text, uh, Priscilla Daichi Storant. Um, who is um, uh, American and actually uh, she attended one session in Rochester with um, Roshi Kaplow I think I think it was that uh, that early on and um, she she uh, ran away from session um, so it's just just a reminder that um, <coughs> you can't you can't um, judge somebody on one sashin. Um, she she ran away she ran away from that particular sashin, but she certainly didn't run away from Zen. Um, Shoto Harada also has a, um, a, a retreat place on an island off Washington State called Woodby Island. And uh, he's been saying for years that he plans to eventually move there when he can pass on his many duties at Sogenji to, to others. Um, and I don't know if that's happened yet, but it's, it's certainly he's been saying that for many, many years. Um, he's also a very fine calligrapher, has a um, distinctive style, quite, um, immediately recognizable and he uses his calligraphy as another mode of uh, teaching the Dharma. 
We're going to just start by reading the, this whole uh, short piece on um, Bodhidharma's outline of practice, since it's just it's just two, two and a half pages, and then we'll <coughs> look at it look at it in detail, and also say more about Bodhidharma and some of the stories around him. So. <coughs> Is a um, Bodhidharma's outline of practice. <clears throat> there are many avenues for entering the way, but essentially they are all of two kinds: entering through the principle and entering through practice. Entering through the principle is awakening to the essential by means of the teachings. It requires a profound trust that all living beings, both enlightened and ordinary, share the same true nature, which is obscured and unseen due only to mistaken perception. If you turn from the false to the true, dwelling steadily in war contemplation, there is no self or other, and ordinary people and sages are one and the same. This um, war contemplation is another way of saying Zazen. Um, Bodhidharma came to be known uh, as the wall-gazing Brahman because uh, he is said to have sat for nine years facing a wall when he came to China. You abide unmoving and unwavering. Again, he's talking about Zazen never again confused by written teachings. Complete, ineffable accord with the principle is without discrimination, still effortless. It is called entering through the principle. Entering through practice refers to four all-encompassing practices. The practice of requiting animosity, the practice of accepting one's circumstances, the practice of craving nothing, and the practice of accord with the Dharma. And then he says a little bit about each of these. What is the practice of requiting animosity? When experiencing suffering, a practitioner of the way should reflect. For innumerable eons I have preferred the superficial to the fundamental, drifting through various states of existence creating much animosity and hatred, bringing endless harm and discord. Though I have done nothing, done nothing wrong in this life, I am reaping the natural consequences of past offences, my evil karma. It is not meted out by some heavenly agency. I accept it patiently and with contentment, utterly without animosity, animosity or complaint. A sutra says, when you encounter suffering, do not be distressed. Why? Because your consciousness opens up to the fundamental. Cultivating this attitude, you are in accord with the principle. Advancing on the path through the experience of animosity. This is called the practice of requiting animosity. So um, to accept with equanimity um, 
the animosity of others. Very, I would say, a very advanced practice to really, really be able to do this. Of course, he's he's talking here. Um, Um, about our many births, um, turning away from from uh, as you say here, um, I have preferred the superficial to the fundamental. Turning away, you say, could say from the fundamental towards the superficial. You don't ha necessarily have to believe in rebirth for this to make sense. We can think of it in evolutionary terms. We think of all the lives that have, have had to um, exist for us to be here now. And how many of those lives involved um, either eating other living beings or trying to avoid being eaten by them. I think this is what he's talking about when he talks about, um, well, in part, he's talking about this when he says um, that we create, uh, um, through, our, through our many past offences, we create animosity. And we'll see later that <coughs> Harada Roshi takes takes a similar kind of um, angle on this on these statements. Another way you could talk about it is in terms of our, our um, genetic inheritance of, of in instinctual inheritance. All the um, desire and aversion. That we are, we comes to us in our genetic makeup. Second is the practice of accepting circumstances. Living beings have no fixed self, and are entirely shaped by the impact of circumstances. Both suffering and pleasure are produced by circumstances. If you experience such positive rewards as wealth and fame, this results from past causes. You receive the benefits now, but as soon as these circumstances are played out, it will be over. Why should you celebrate? Success and failure depend upon circumstances, while the mind does not gain or lose. Not being moved, even by the winds of good fortune, is ineffable accord with the way. Thus it is called the practice of accepting one's circumstances. Another way of putting this would be to say not to take things personally. That that a multitude of causes and conditions come together for us to experience whatever we experience, whether it's misfortune or good fortune. It's not all about us. Third is the practice of craving nothing. The various sorts of longing and attachment that people experience in their unending ignorance are regarded as craving. The wise awaken to the truth, 
going with the principle rather than with conventional ideas. Peace at heart, with nothing to do, they change, peaceful at heart, with nothing to do, they change in accord with the seasons. All existence, lacking substance, they desire nothing. They know that the goddesses of good and bad fortune always travel as a pair, and that the triple world, where they have lived so long, is like a burning house. Suffering inevitably comes from with having a body. Who can find peace? If you understand this fully, you quit all thoughts of other states of being and no longer crave them. A sutra says, to crave is to suffer. To crave nothing is bliss. Thus, we understand clearly that craving nothing is the true practice of the way. He uses here this image of our existence as a burning house. This comes from the Lotus Sutra in the parable of the, of the, uh, the father and, and children inside a burning house. But it's a particularly vivid one for us now, given that our planet is now a burning house as a result of our trying to fulfill our every craving to fill the gaping uh, holes in us that we uh, imagine are there. Fourth is the practice of accord with the Dharma. The principle of essential purity is the Dharma. Under this principle, all form is without substance, undefilable and without attachment, neither this nor that. The Vilamakirti Sutra says, In this Dharma there are no living beings because it transcends the defiling concept of living beings. In this Dharma there is no self because it transcends the defiling concept of self. When the wise embrace and understand this principle, they are practicing accord with the Dharma. Since in the Dharma there is fundamentally nothing to withhold, the wise practice generosity, giving their bodies, lives and possessions without any regret in their minds. Fully understanding the emptiness of giver, gift and recipient, they do not fall into bias or attachment. Ridding themselves of all defilements, they aid in the liberation of living beings without grasping at appearances. In this way, they benefit themselves and others, both, gracing the way of enlightenment. In the same fashion, they practice the five other perfections to eliminate false thinking in practicing the six perfections means having no thought of practicing them. This is practicing in accord with the Dharma. goes here from this um, of seeing into the the insubstantiality of everything to practicing generosity because when he, when we deeply see into the no no thingness and the no selfness of of everything then 
There's no holding back. He says, since the Dharma, there is fundamentally nothing to withhold. The wise practice generosity, giving their bodies, lives and possessions without any regret in their minds. So it's it's a, um, a good test for us when we when if we have if we hold back in any way any kind of way then it's a clear indicator that we have work to do that we haven't seen fully into. Um, the emptiness of all five skandhas, as we say in the um, Heart Sutra. The emptiness of our body and our mind. Okay, so that's that's our text. And we'll, we'll look at it more in detail as we go through. But first, um, just some some biographical material on Bodhidharma, founder of the Zen school. Um, he, he lived um, roughly a thousand years after the time of the Buddha. He said, and this is this I'm um, drawing here on on um, Shoda Harada Roshi's commentary. He said to have been the third son of a king of of southern India. Um, his name, uh, as as a boy, was Bodhi Tara, and he had two elder brothers, uh, Getsujo Tara and Koku Kudoku Tara. Um, these are their Japanized versions of their names. I don't. I wasn't able to find their their um, Sanskrit names. But this story is told about them. Um, Prajnatara, uh, who's in our ancestral line, right right before Bodhidharma, um, was a a spiritual teacher. And he came to the court of Bodhidharma's father and uh, greatly impressed him, the king. And so he was so moved by his teaching that he presented Prajnatara with a jade ball, so a large spherical piece of jade, a great treasure. Then, on receiving this this gift, Prajnatara went to each of the king's sons and uh, posed a question. He asked each boy, "What is this?" Of course, this was more than just. An ordinary question. He was testing these these young men. Getsujo Tara, so the the um, oldest, said, "It is a wonderful ball, unequalled in all the country, a great national treasure." 
Then Prajnatara went to the middle son, Kudokutara, and and said, asked the same question, what is this? And the second son said, this is a superb and wonderful jade ball, but if an ordinary person held it, it would have little meaning. Only because you are holding is it so wonderful. Then Prajnatara went to uh, Bodhaitara, the future Bodhidharma, and said to him, what is this? And Bodhaitara answered, this is a wonderful treasure in this world perhaps, but it is not the most important thing. Mind is by far more important. It is like comparing the moon with the sun. And Prajnatara was um, struck by the, this, this youngest son's understanding. So several years later, when the king died, uh, Bodhaitara became Prajnatara's disciple. And it was at this point that he received the name Bodhidharma. Um, Haradaraji says that, that Bodhidharma was with his teacher training for 40 years. And it is said that for 60 more years after that, he taught, walking all over India. And then that at the end of this time, he went to China. And this was after having been told by um, his teacher that, um, that he was to go to China 60 years after the teacher, Prajnatara, died. He told him that he was going to go to China when the time was right. Now, it's hard to it's hard to believe that he set out out on this journey when he was over a hundred years old, and so we can take the take this as with 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 an understanding that these these stories become uh, myths, they're founding myths. So we could say he went when he was very old. He went when most most people would be thinking thinking that they might take it easy. One of the one of the famous koans um, in Zen, actually quite a few. Um, Koans have start with a question, the same question, but the one here that we're looking at is the one when um, Master Joshu was asked this question. The question is, what is the meaning of the patriarchs coming from the West? In other words, Bodhidharma. What is the meaning of, of Bodhidharma's coming from the West? Why did he come to China? And Joshu's answer was uh, the oak tree in the garden. It was sometimes it's given as the cypress tree in the garden. 
And if you go to Joshu's temple, it got complete, almost completely destroyed in the Cultural Revolution, but it's since been rebuilt. It still has the original uh, stupa that was there. You'll see a, a whole bunch of um, cypress trees that have been planted and grown up. What is the meaning of Bodhidharmas coming from the West? Again, this isn't an idle question. Why? Why did Bodhidharma leave India and go to China? Shoto Harada comments, Bodhidharma did not leave India simply to spread enlightenment and teach what he had learned. He goes on to say he had experienced enlightenment and received the transmission directly from the line of Shakyamuni, the Buddha, and his disciple Mahakashapa. And then he tells the story of that transmission. One day, during his scheduled talk to his students, the Buddha stood on the top of Vulture Peak and simply held up a single flower, and on that day, only Mahakashapa understood. This was the beginning of the transmission from Shakyamuni's awakening down to the present day. If his teachings had been looked at only as philosophy, this transmission would never have come to be passed down. This awakened experience of the Buddha, that which created a path for us to experience, is what the Buddha conveyed that morning. This path cannot be understood only by studying the Buddha's words. We can say that the Buddha's words help to point us in the right direction. And many of us come to Buddhism by through uh, reading books or hearing teachings, spoken teachings. But at a certain point, sooner or later, we uh, we need to put down the books and and read instead our minds. But if if it isn't words that that um, express this this true teaching, then what is it? What is it that, that can awaken us to our Buddha nature? And, and Harada Roshi says that this was the Bodhidharma's mission. It was to bring this uh, direct experience from India to China To bring the essence. But we should understand that this essence doesn't come or go. So what could he have brought that wasn't already there?
1,500 years have passed since the time of Bodhidharma. Imagine how difficult it must have been so long ago for such an old man to cross the Indian Ocean, to have faced the wind and the terrible seas in that part of the world. It is said to have taken Bodhidharma nearly three years to reach China. It surely took all of his life energy and strength to make the journey. Bodhidharma had no intention of ever returning to India, but he was not simply looking for another place to teach his Dharma. He knew within that this was what he had to do, beyond any personal desires or needs. Would he actually raise Buddhist disciples in China? He did not know. Would they understand all that he taught? He did not know. How confused were the Chinese about the meaning of the true Dharma? This he could not foresee. Really, really is awesome to think of this journey that Bodhidharma made selflessly, not knowing whether he would succeed, not knowing what he would find, coming into a completely different culture, completely foreign. There's read years ago a, a piece about the the multiple difficulties that exist in in translating Indian sutras into Chinese because of the, the the very different ways that the languages are structured. But of course, Bodhidharma wasn't bringing the words. He was he was um, his undertaking was to to rather uncover the vast universe that exists prior to words, prior to being being spoken in terms of this or that language. As we live our lives, we encounter many obstructions. These obstructions, like stones in our path, can become sources of confusion, suffering and pain. It is important that we move beyond them and continue. This is true for everyone, even those who have had a deep enlightenment experience. Even the person who has opened his heart will at times become confused. Even those with great wisdom will suffer. Here, a, tri a higher training, a greater training is necessary. This is what Joshua was saying when he answered the oak tree in the garden. And we well, maybe at times we may feel discouraged, we may may feel like there are all kinds of obstructions in our way. And we can we can turn to to Bodhidharma uh, for encouragement. It's hard to imagine a more more difficult task than the one he undertook. And and we can appreciate that it was for him an inner necessity to do this to make this journey. It, it was his his at that point. It was his ongoing training. 
he he was in one sense responding to the need this great um, great civilization of china to to bring to bring this teaching to that civilization but at the same time that response was was necessary for him so the need he was fulfilling and and his his own need were not two the oak tree in the garden Master Rinzai was also asked the question, what is the meaning of the, of the ancestors coming from the West? This, this question, um, for people new, new to Zen, this question is, is like one of the, the classical ways of asking for the teaching. It's like saying, what is, what is the meaning of Zen? So when Master Rinzai was asked this question, he answered, if there is any meaning at all, you can never save yourself. Typical <laughs> Rinzai kind of answer. If there is any meaning at all, you can never save yourself. That is, if there is even the smallest bit of self-awareness left in our minds, we cannot be content and we cannot say that we're liberated. Yet even if we have no self-awareness, no consciousness, how do we take on social obligations? If we have no self-awareness left in our minds, how do we go about living our lives? Such questions naturally arise when we look at these words of Rinzai. If you can, if there is any meaning at all, you can never save yourself. What Rinzai is, is really inviting us to do is to go beyond um, the the kind of the intellectual problem of what the meaning of of bodhidharma's coming from the West is. It, we 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 think about things, and then we we may. Um, ascribe a meaning to that thing does the oak tree in the garden have a meaning does it need one we lay something over the top of the just the the, the being of an oak tree there's a saying, a saying in Zen to put frost on top of snow Rinzai is saying that if you take the question up intellectually, you will never get it. In fact, you will be doing what all the scholars and social theorists are doing. There is essentially no difference. But how can we then say that Bodhidharma did not have self-awareness? How can we say that we should not be working consciously when we are out in the world? How can we go about living our lives so that we will not be caught by our own thoughts and fantasies when we are out functioning in the world. What is Rinzai saying? 
This is what we were all, are all trying to know and what Bodhidharma taught. Perhaps it can be helpful. We can only really answer these questions for ourselves. Um, explanations just get in the way. But we can perhaps say that it, it pivots on, on the difference between, between self-awareness and, and uh, or awareness, just pure awareness, and self-preoccupation. And we just be fully present to whatever is right in front of us without adding on preoccupations, worries, anxieties, concerns about how we're being seen, that we're we're um, a good person or um, a useless person. According to the transmission of the lamp, Bodhidharma reached China in the year uh, AD 527. The emperor at the time was Wu, the founder of the Yang dynasty. Emperor Wu was known as a strong supporter of Buddhism because of his great efforts in providing for the copying and distribution of sutras, in bringing monks and priests to his realm, in building thousands of temples and in training tens of thousands of monks. By doing these things, he hoped to raise the spirituality of his countrymen. When he heard that Bodhidharma was coming, coming, he looked forward to meeting him and awaited him eagerly. When Bodhidharma arrived, the emperor said, I've built many temples, given livelihood to tens of thousands of monks, and translated many sutras. What is the merit of this? Bodhidharma answered, no merit at all. So not as, no matter how many temples or monks the, the emperor had um, supported, Bodhidharma simply answered, no merit. Haruta Roshi says that it's easy to misunderstand this answer. We, we need to look carefully at what he's really saying. When we do Azazen, is it really of no merit? If there, is, if there is the slightest speck of thought as to what will be gained through this practice, such a clouded view will get us nowhere. At the same time, if we do not vow to attain enlightenment, how can we get there? This is another of the kind of um, core koans of Zen practice. If you are thinking about these questions all the time, you still have far to go. 
and then he quotes um, he quotes Joshua from and this is from uh, the commentary to uh, the Koan Mu in the Mumonkan. The dog's Buddha nature. Offer up yourself from the tips of your toes to the very top of your head. This is the this is the a, a beautiful instruction, and it's the answer. It's the antidote to um, getting caught up in thinking about what will be gained through our practice. We will we will have those thoughts, but if we can not give them too much credence and instead just just throw ourselves into the practice of the moment whether sitting on our mat or working in the kitchen or walking in the grounds just to offer ourselves up from the tips of the toe, our toes to the top of our head whereas I think it says in the in the commentary our our uh, 360 bones and our 84,000 hair follicles. If there is the slightest awareness of good and good and bad, you are as good as dead. If you are still aware of your breathing in your body, the zazen of no merit is far away. When you experience the mind without a single speck of clutter, you will, for the first time, experience the zazen of no merit. Bodhidharma answered no merit and said it all. If you want to do wonderful things, build temples, raise disciples, translate sutras, go ahead. But if there is even one speck of self-awareness in your doing of these things, then it is all impure. So, so Bodhidharma here, we can understand his no merit as actually being um, an ex uh, a lofty state. As a state of no merit is a state of no self, which is a state of no other, no enlightened one, no unenlightened one. But the emperor didn't understand what Bodhidharma was saying. He was shocked, <laughs> in fact, taken aback. Building temples, raising disciples, and translating sutras, if these are all of no merit, then what is the most important thing in the world? If these are all meaningless, what is the deepest meaning to be found? This is the question he asked. What is the, the, the meaning of the, of the holy teaching? And Bodhidharma answered, um, Nothing holy, only emptiness. Or sometimes it's translated, vast emptiness and nothing to be called holy. Nothing holy, only emptiness. Nothing splendid, only emptiness everywhere, like that vast fall sky. Not a speck of anything to be grateful for. We all have to sit until we can experience this. We must sit straight, like Mount Fuji rising out of the sea, and do Zazen that raises our entire body and touches our deepest center. Foggy, vague Zazen will not do. Unless we can become taut and full 
it will be useless. Yet even that is not good enough if any trace of self-conscious awareness remains. We have to be rid of it all. Bodhidharma said, nothing holy, only emptiness. We have to sit until we know this essence for ourselves. This phrase, uh, taught and full, is one that um, comes up quite a lot in Shodo Harada Roshi's teaching. To become taught and full. Taught, but not tight, is the, the, the image that can be helpful here uh, in terms of, our, of our, our, our mental and physical attitude is uh, to be like a, like a cello, say, a tuned cello, where the strings have to be stretched, taut, in order for the instrument to produce notes. That's those strings need to be be stretched, you could say stretched to attention, a T T E N T I O N in order to, to make a sound. And at the same time, there's when that, that cello sounds, there's a fullness to it. And the fullness of the note comes from it's having resonated in the empty body of that cello. The fullness is, is at the same time uh, a no-thingness, a space. And it, it's the same in our Zazen, we need you need um, a posture of, of alertness, of, of, of uh, uh, tautness that can resonate with whatever um, it is apprehended. And that, that, that also required is emptiness, this cavity which can can receive the sound and amplify it. <coughs> the emperor was again shocked and asked, um, who is answering the emperor like this? Implying that um, here was this, this holy sage saying there was only vast emptiness and nothing holy. So if, if that's the case, who are you, the emperor's asking? Aren't you holy person? And then we have probably the, the most, most famous response in all of Zen and the one that really, I could say in a way, encapsulates our, our Zen practice. Bodhidharma replied, I don't know. <coughs> the emperor could not understand these words spoken by Bodhidharma. So Bodhidharma left Emperor Wu's land and traveled north to a mountain near present-day Beijing where he was given a temple. 
And uh, rather than go on to this sort of next chapter in Bodhidharma's life, uh, we'll, we'll stop here and recite the four vows. beings without number, I vow to liberate endless fine passions, I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure, I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha, I vow to attain all beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha, I vow to attain. The teaching you have received is offered freely. If you would like to make a donation to support the continuation of this podcast service or learn more about practice opportunities at the Auckland Zen Centre, please visit www.aucklandzen.com dot org dot nz